This is a podcast from HSBC Global Research, available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. However you're listening, analystifications, disclosures and disclaimers must be viewed on the link attached to your media player. Welcome to Under the Banny Entry, where we put Asian markets and economics in context. I'm Fred Newman, Chief Asia Economist at HSBC. And I'm Harold Van Linde, Head of Asian Equity Strategy. On today's show, we'll be looking at what rising US bond yields mean for investors in Asia. That's right. It's a discussion that touches on virtually every asset class, from bonds to FX, and of course, equity markets and the overall economy. There's going to be a lot to unpack, so let's get started. From HSBC Global Research, this is Under the Banny Entry. Let's start with some facts and figures to set the scene for today's discussion. We normally focus on Asia here, but you simply can't ignore the impact that rising US rates are having across the world right now. The yield on 10-year treasuries, which is the benchmark for US government bonds, hit a 16-year high this week. This tells us a few things, uh, but what is most important is that markets are adjusting to the prospects of high US interest rates for a longer period of time. Fred, why don't you kick us off here? What does this mean for the macro picture in Asia? Yeah, rates are on the move in the US again, and it's a bit of a headache for investors in Asia, for central bankers in the region. Now, what happened in the US is that really it looks as if the US economy is a bit stronger than expected. Mm. It's more resilient despite the rate hikes that we've seen. And so the market is repricing expectations on when the Fed will cut and is actually pushing it out into the future. And that's this idea of higher interest rates for longer. Um, And that ultimately means if you get more money, uh, more returns on your U.S. money, that is, you invest in the U.S., you get higher returns, higher interest rates, that, of course, also keeps the dollar stronger, and that has implications then for the rest of the world. So the Fed still sets, really, the price of global money, and with the Fed signaling, in effect, that it's not going to cut anytime soon, and inflation being sticky in the U.S. and the U.S. economy doing well, that is just uh, an expectation on rates that we're currently reporting pricing in markets for with a higher for longer expectation. Now, higher rates, of course, great for investors who put the money in the bank, perhaps because Mm. they get higher interest rates. But what does this mean for equity markets in general? Surely that must have an impact on equity markets as well. Yeah, for equity markets in general, this is not good news. And we've seen equity markets coming off globally in the last, uh, what is it, week or so, when those rates started to rise again. And in Asia, this is in particular, so we are more sensitive to it because, just as you say, it, it means if you can if you can get five percent in a deposit in the U.S. and you you're not quite sure what you can get in Asia, a lot of people say, well, on the margin, I keep it there. So they're not willing to uh, to to invest in Asian equity markets at at the moment. And the problem, I think, also for Asian equity investors, it feels as if you go hiking up a mountain and you've never hiked that mountain before and you're tired and you're getting to the top, you feel like, okay, it's two more corners and then we're there. And then you do two corners and then it turns out there's another corner. And then you get to that corner and you think, oh, we're at the peak and then there's another corner. So there's a bit of fatigue coming in as well in the sense that every time we think that we're at the peak of, of interest rate expectations and the worst is therefore over for Asian equities, it turns out, 
out that the US is doing, again, is stronger than anticipated, and these bond yields move another step higher. Um, so you see that the appetite to buy Asian equities is just extremely limited. But what is important is in particular the view on the dollar. Now, uh, what are we saying about that? Uh, I suspect stronger, right? Well, yeah, if we have higher U.S. interest rates or higher for longer, um, then that means, of course, a strong dollar. The dollar has appreciated, has gained in value against virtually all Asian currencies. currencies. And that, of course, is a headwind for anybody who wants to invest in Asia, because if you invest in the local currencies, they lose your investment loses value versus the U.S. dollar. So not only do you get higher interest rates in U.S. dollars, but yeah. also you essentially lose because so there's another reason not to invest. Another in reason to invest yeah. now, um, and that means there's obviously a lack of capital inflows into Asia because a stronger dollar is a bit of a hurdle then for for these capital inflows to come. On the other hand, there's of course also this idea that a weaker local currency is good for exporters because they become more competitive. They sell in dollars and they the cost in local currency, so they make should be making higher margins in effect. So for exporting company, probably not the worst thing if the currency depreciates. Is that reflected then in Asian equity markets and valuations? To a certain extent it is. So you're right. Um, If we talk about Asian equities, there's of course a a large number of companies that all respond individually very different to this. So uh, say a stronger US dollar, a weaker local currency is good for exports because their products are becoming cheaper. And actually some of the exporters have done really well this year, Taiwanese and uh, Korean exporters, uh, Japanese actually as well. Although it isn't just the dollar story, but that's also because of artificial intelligence. You need a lot of servers and chips to run that, a lot of memory. So that is the, the, the underlying theme there. On the other hand, you also have companies that benefit from higher bond yields. Think about banks, for example. Right? They get money in from depositors. They don't really do too much with that, but they lend out money to companies and they say, sorry, interest rates go up. We're going to raise interest rates for you as well. So their margins can expand. So this tends to be positive for all sorts of uh, banks across the region. And then there are parts of Asia where, yes, it is all negative, but the underlying growth story is so good that actually, yeah, that offsets the negativity that comes from these global factors. India is a great example. So India is up, uh, I think it's about 18% year to date. And Korea and Taiwan have also done very well. To a certain extent, you could say this has already been reflected in Asian equities. The other issue is, of course, what are Asian central banks are going to do? Well, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, actually. The weaker Asian currencies, the stronger U.S. dollar, because as you rightly say, for the exporters, it's it's a mm. positive, and you've seen some exporting economies do well on the export side, at least some companies in those sectors. On the other hand, a weaker currency usually means higher imported inflation, particularly when oil prices are high. Going up, yep. And that makes the job very hard for central banks to lower interest rates. And so what we're seeing is that the weak local currency is actually constraining central banks in the freedom of maneuver. They may have to keep, like the Fed, interest rates higher for longer as well. And that's, of course, negative for domestic demand speaking on the whole. And and this is perhaps how economists think about currency movements and their impact on economies, which is a weaker local currency. It's great for the exporter, but it's usually not as good for the domestic economy. Whereas the opposite, if the 
local currencies are strong, then of course the exporter suffers and the domestic economy does better. But at the moment, it's really exporters benefiting at the margin more than domestic economies. And I kind of wonder whether that plays into your thinking about equity markets as well. Yeah, so I think the way we look at equity markets is kind of, yes, we understand that the global macro is just not helping that. So it is domestic factors that need to drive these markets higher. Um, And in certain cases, those factors will not be strong enough. Uh, Those markets will be down. China is a good example, is down year to date. Um, But we've got interesting kind of growth stories in 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 the region i already mentioned for example artificial intelligence requires that companies set up servers and need many more chips and memory to store all the information that they use so that's good for tech producers and some of them have done really well and reinvented their business around it in other areas and i'm really thinking about india and indonesia for example we have other trends at play that are not really impacted by these macro things so for example the build out of infrastructure means that formal retail is gaining market share for informal retail in india so it's the mom and pop stores that lose out and it's your bigger formats that that, that gain and yeah some of these companies grow 15 to 20 percent this year so yeah, that's a great story. Yes, the macro is not so good, but it, there are these growth stories so, around. So the way, Harold, you describe it, there are pockets of the economy which are not interest rate sensitive, and, and those are driven by other factors. Yeah. Um, but uh, going back to this, this, what we saw over the last few weeks, which is a sharp rise in long-term U.S. interest rates in particular, um, isn't that then still a big hurdle for the overall market? Because, of course, if I'm an investor, I can put my money in the bank and earn you know, a certain high number of interest. But then I have, you know, ultimately, in the equity market, much more risk and no guaranteed returns. Isn't that still a big headwind for markets overall? Yeah. And then the question really is, what sort of investor are you? Because if you say, I need to make a return on my portfolio of the next three months, these global macro factors will probably still be in case in the next three months. There's no reason to believe they won't. And therefore, it's difficult to see how you're going to make a lot of money in Asian equities. On, on average, there might be some upside, but not a lot. There are also investors who say, yes, I understand this macro, but I see this as an opportunity because all these stocks are getting sold down. And I like this company because it's going to continue to gain market share, not only this year, but the year thereafter and the year thereafter. And I like that that company because in AI it's going to be a dominant player and that's not going to go away this year, next year or the year thereafter either. So you could also consider it to be an opportunity and valuations for a lot of these companies across Asia, with the exception maybe of a lot of Indian companies, uh, valuations are, are very low. So if you have a longer term horizon, yeah, there are opportunities around there. Yeah, but broadly, I find it also interesting if we take a step back, we talk a lot about decoupling, the U.S. economy becoming less important. But yet mm. here is a good example of how yeah, U.S. Is. monetary policy still matters. We are still so connected yes. in global financial markets. And so yes. the Fed is really a pace setter for global global markets. Yeah. But at the same time, the U.S. economy is not strong enough to give us the growth. It gives us higher interest rates, but it doesn't necessarily transmit in terms of growth for Asia. So we're left with higher interest rates, but not the benefits of growth. And that's a bit of a struggle at the moment for, for Asia. Yeah, a bit of a struggle is probably an understatement. It is really a struggle for uh, for Asian equities, at least. And if you look at the size of the U.S. stock market, it is really large. China is really large, but then in Asia, a lot of these markets are much smaller. So they are simply subject to to these global factors. Uh, They can't just 
go on their own or carve their own path, they, uh, they, they will have to follow the trends that are set by, by the U.S. So all that means really that as an Asian equity strategist and an Asian economist, we still need to read the tea leaves on the Fed and U.S. rates uh, as, as ever. As uh, ever. As ever before. And, and that and, will not change uh, in the next couple of years. That will not probably change before we retire, you and I, probably, which is yes. going to be many decades into the future. <laughs> we are still young men, of course, <laughs> yes. Uh, Fred, over the last week we had the Mid-Autumn Festival here in Hong Kong and mainland China. That is a major uh, event on the uh, Chinese uh, calendar. It's a celebration. Uh, markets are closed for multiple days. People travel around. They're seeing family again. And we all eat mooncakes. Uh, lanterns are being put up. Um, have you been constructing lanterns already with your uh, son, your little boy? Uh, not yet. You, you get very, very uh, fancy lanterns to buy here. Uh, yes, cars and starships, yes. etc. Um, <laughs> I think at nine months, my son is a bit too young yet to to play with candles and lanterns. Yeah. Um, he, he would like to probably, but I don't think we would allow well, we that at this position. point. That's right. But no, it's a wonderful festival. And it's also an opportunity, of course, uh, to see family, to have family meals. It's, uh, it's, it's celebrated across greater China. But of course, there are differing opinions about mooncakes, to be honest there, Harold. Um, you have, you know, the the salty egg yolky mm, kind yes. of mooncake. You've got the, the ice cream mooncake. I'm not sure where I stand on this. What's your mooncake go-to pleasure? My first experience with mooncakes in the early 90s um, was more in the category of maybe I'm not a big fan of this because that was the salty egg and lotus crushed lotus seed uh, mooncake. Um, but what we've seen over the last 20, 30 years is a tremendous evolution in mooncakes. We had a few on the floor which had all kinds of quirky, I would say, but not too sweet fillings. They were actually not so heavy. They were quite light. Um, I'm definitely more in that particular camp. What yeah, about you? I, I had a similar experience in the 1990s, my first mooncake. And you never forget your first mooncake because <laughs> right. um, it looks to, you know, a, a Western palate like a marzipan kind of sweet cake. Yeah. And I and bit into put- it expecting, you know, that sweet marzipan taste. But it was Nothing a, like a salty egg yolk. And just that contrast really yeah, yeah. Uh, took me several years to get back on a mooncake train. Yeah. Um, but there are, as you say, excellent mooncakes out there. And the evolution of mooncakes, of course, over time yeah. um, has given us many more choices. And so for the discerning palate, there are quite uh, fancy mooncakes around. So I would recommend to our listeners, uh, if they're in this part of the world, to, to, sample, to sample mooncakes again. And if you had that salty egg yolk experience before, just give it a second try. It is really quite good. Well, everybody, we could wax lyrical on mooncakes till next mid-autumn festival, but in the interest of time, we'll wrap things up there. Thanks for joining us once again on The Banyan Tree, and be sure to tune in at the same time next week when we'll be back putting Asian markets and economics in context. And in the meantime, do check out our other podcast from HSBC Global Research, The Macro Brief and The ESG Brief. Just like this podcast, they're available on Apple, Spotify, or whatever your preferred podcast platform may be. From all of us here in Hong Kong, thanks again for listening.